All right, I want to dive right in for the time we've lost and read the first half of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So grab your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 14. Let's read. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring to you some revelation or knowledge or uh, prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or harp don't give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? You'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning, but if I don't know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. And so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I'll sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it's written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders are unbeliever, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is God's word for us today. I imagine that as I read these verses that you all probably had a range of different responses depending on who you are and what your background is. Some of you, as I was reading, might be thinking, 
why don't we see or invite expressions of gifts like these into our weekly gatherings more frequently, or maybe even at all? Others of you were not thinking that. Others of you were thinking, if some of these things ever happened on a Sunday when we were in church together, I would feel really uncomfortable. Maybe for some of you, because this brings up painful memories. Maybe some of you have a background uh, with a church that taught you that uh, if you don't speak in tongues, that you probably have not been filled with God's Spirit yet. Maybe you're not even a Christian. Maybe as you were growing up, you were coached and coaxed into even how to manufacture tongues, and maybe you even pretended at times for the sake of appearances, and all that left a taste in your mouth, a bad taste in your mouth, and you'd just rather put all this behind you. Or maybe uh, some of you are thinking, I don't know what to make of these extraordinary gifts in the New Testament. They're confusing. I've never experienced anything like them in my life. The church seems to be getting along fine without them. Why don't we just move along? Well, your response probably has something to do with what you believe about whether or not these unique gifts God intends to continue to edify his church today until Jesus comes uh, or not. If you look back at the end of last week's passage that Jackson really beautifully preached, chapter 13, verse 8, Paul says at one point, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. And so we ask the question, then when? At some point, gifts like prophecy, gifts like tongues will cease. They will no longer be needed. So when? Well, there's two really broad views on that. One view uh, says that these miraculous gifts like prophecy and tongues were only for a time. God gave them for a period of time as the early church was being birthed and the apostles were teaching and writing and explaining the significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And once the New Testament was complete and we had, like the book of Jude says, this faith that we are to contend for once and for all delivered to the saints, that there was no longer need for these, these gifts and they've ceased. So that's one view, that, that those particular gifts have ceased and we shouldn't expect them any longer. The other view is that Paul assumed that these gifts, along with all the others, would continue until Jesus returns. And, and I think if you look at chapter 13, verse 12, really helps us answer the when question. Verse 12, he says, Now, at this present time, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And the then there seems clearly to be when Jesus returns. Then when we see Jesus face to face. So I think that, that given that, that, that I, we expect that these gifts will continue until we are face to face with Jesus where they'll be no longer necessary. But until then, we should expect that God wants to edify his people, his church through all the gifts as he wills, of course, as the spirit gives them. I also think it would be strange, I think, for us to have a book like 1 Corinthians that God has given to us as inspired, authoritative, sufficient scripture with these chapters that give us clear guidance about how gifts like these should be done, uh, exercised in an orderly way, even encouraging us to desire gifts like these if they were only going to be for one generation of the church. It just seems odd to me. It seems like we've been given this for our instruction and for our help in sorting all this out. So I just want to say a grace we believe that God continues to edify his church as he wills through all the gifts and we want to eagerly seek that work I also want to state clearly we believe that God has revealed himself sufficiently through the Old Testament 
and the New Testament, and he doesn't plan to continue adding to this. We have a complete sufficient word. Like Second uh, Peter 1 says, God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through his great and uh, very precious promises. Or like 2 Timothy 3 says that we have been given everything we need to make us wise unto salvation. So our understanding of these extraordinary gifts, particularly prophecy, should never undermine that. It should never suggest to us that we are incomplete. We need a further word from God still to fill in details that he's not yet revealed. He's revealed everything we need for salvation and life and godliness in the scriptures. So now, chapter 14, to put it in its context, remember back in chapter 12, Paul began dealing with this issue of how the spiritual gifts and spiritual ministries were causing divisions in the church, and some were being elevated and spotlighted, and others were being minimized or even um, despised, maybe. And so he says in that chapter with this body uh, illustration, there's no gift that's too important. And there's none that are unimportant. Every member of the body is necessary in God's view. Uh, And then in chapter 13, he gets right to the heart of the matter and, and he addresses the heart of love. Because the Corinthians weren't acting in love. In their spotlighting and highlighting of certain gifts and minimizing others, Paul says your priorities or your values aren't correct. You are seeing certain gifts as higher that I don't see as higher. And so he wants to correct them. And at the beginning of chapter 14, that's what he's going to do. He explains what he considers to be the higher gifts that they should earnestly desire. So, As you saw, we're going to take two weeks on this chapter. Uh, Eric's going to preach next week, the second half. And he and I were talking this week and and sort of crafted a summary statement of this chapter together that I I hope is helpful. It's this. I think the, the big point of this entire chapter is that the gathering, when the church gathers regularly as we're called to do, it's for orderly edification, motivated by love, grounded in intelligible instruction for the sake of the gospel. Let me say that again. This gathering is for orderly edification, motivated by love, grounded in intelligible instruction for the sake of the gospel. So as our longing to be back together face-to-face in in, in our gathering increases, what a great opportunity we have right now to be reminded and renewed in our vision for what is our aim when we drive to be with each other here again each week. Well, it's this. It's more than this, but at the heart, it's this. We're to build one another up, motivated by love, grounded in intelligible instruction for the sake of the gospel. So I want to start with motivated by love because that's the first two words in this chapter. Paul says, pursue love. It's a strong word. Pursue, I mean, the word he uses for pursue is the same word that Paul frequently uses, like in chapter 15, to describe the way he persecuted the early church before he was a Christian when he was passionately pursuing Christians, chasing them down on the road to Damascus to round them up and imprison them. Same word, he says, pursue love. So don't just love when it's convenient, love if you have the chance, but pursue it tenaciously. Which is then why he makes the point of this first half of the chapter, which is this, this is the point of this half. When the church is gathered, prophecy is greater than tongues. 
That's his whole point in this first half. When the church is gathered in that setting, all gifts are not equal. He says prophecy is actually the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Look at he says it three times. Verse one, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. He says it again in verse five. Um, he says, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. And again, he says at the end of the chapter, verse 39, earnestly desire to prophesy and don't forbid speaking in tongues. So notice the difference of priority there. Earnestly desire the one, but as far as speaking in tongues when you gather, well, okay, don't forbid it. But that's a far cry from saying earnestly desire or seek it. So prophecy is greater than tongues when we gather. All right, I have four points this morning. The first one, we just have to ask, ask the question, what? What are these two spiritual gifts exactly? So we understand them. And then the other three points are why. Why here does Paul argue that prophecy when we gather together for worship is, is greater than tongues? Let's start with the what. I'm going to use here Wayne Grudem's definitions here from his systematic theology that I think are very helpful. They're clear, concise, and get right at it. Speaking in tongues. This gift is prayer or praise spoken in syllables not understood by the speaker. That's what makes it extraordinary. It's prayer or praise. It's Godward language primarily as we see it in the New Testament. Look at chapter 14, verse 2. One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. It's addressed Godward. If you look down in verses 14 through 17, it's when... The Spirit prays or singing praise with the Spirit or giving thanks with the Spirit. And while the mouth is involved, the mind isn't aware of what the mouth is saying. That's what's extraordinary about it. Spoken in syllables not understood by the speaker. Now, sometimes, if you're thinking like in Acts chapter 2... These were known human languages that the speakers didn't speak. It was amazing. At Pentecost, as, as the disciples and the 12 were waiting for the promised Holy Spirit to fall, they were praying and fasting and waiting in this upper room, and suddenly there was a sound like a, a rush of wind, and these tongues of fire appear over the 12, and they burst out in praise, declaring the mighty works of God in other languages. And as a crowd gathers at this noise, those who gather began realizing something crazy is going on because these men, these Galileans who would never know these languages are declaring the mighty works of God in their languages and they understand them. So sometimes it's in a language understood by others, human languages, but just not known or understood by the one speaking. But at other times, like I think what we're seeing here in 1 Corinthians, it's a language or words that no one understands. Again, look at verse 2. Verse 2, he says, One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. I think this might be what Paul meant in the last chapter when he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Tongues of angels opens up the idea of spiritual language, no human language, but meaningful words nonetheless, not just ecstatic gibberish nonsense. It's, but it's not understood by the speaker. Look at verse, verse 14. My spirit prays, Paul says, when, when he speaks in tongues, but my mind is unfruitful. 
Now, let's not misunderstand. When Paul says his mind is unfruitful, I don't think that means when he speaks in tongues, he's out of his mind or he's out of control of his faculties, sort of like a trance-like state where he sort of loses control of anything. No, because as we'll see next week, even in the, the case where tongues can be spoken in church and interpreted and edify the body, it's to be done in an orderly way where people take turns, which means those who are speaking in tongues have the ability to, to understand and wait and then speak in their turn. So this is an orderly thing as we're going to see next week. All right, so that's speaking in tongues. Prophecy, here again, this is Grudem. It's the telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. <laughs> Not just telling anything that spontaneously comes to mind. That's a problem that I have that I've passed on to at least one of my kids. Um, a verbal processor. But no, he says, telling something God has spontaneously brought to mind. Or the ESV Study Bible says it like this, speech that reports something God spontaneously brings to mind or reveals to the speaker, but which is spoken in merely human words, which means understandable words. So again, we're not talking about authoritative scripture. We're not talking about a, a present revelation and, and another word from the Lord that we should add to this word as, as a part of the canon of scripture on the level of scripture. You see, when you think back to the Old Testament, prophets were a very different sort of thing. The prophets spoke the very words of God. A prophet could say, thus says the Lord. And for anyone to disregard or disobey uh, those words, they were directly disregarding or disobeying God's word. This is not the same as the gift of prophecy as we understand it here in the New Testament. No, the New Testament counterpart of the prophets were the apostles, the apostles were the ones who also, like the prophets, were inspired by the Holy Spirit, spoke and wrote as the Spirit carried them on, and gave us instruction and, and explanation about Jesus that was inspired and authoritative. Paul could say things like, he said in this letter, let no one disregard me in this because I'm speaking on behalf of the Lord. And that's not what we're talking about here because in 1 Thessalonians 5, for example, Paul says, don't despise prophecies, test everything, hold fast to what is good. Can you imagine saying that about Isaiah or about Paul? Well, test everything he says and just hold on to the good stuff. No, it seems that a word of prophecy can be given and it should be assumed that, not presumed that that, that word is, is, it needs to be weighed, it needs to be tested and that some words of prophecy may in turn be deemed unfruitful or unhelpful or even untrue. Which is why I think a word of prophecy should never be given like this. The Lord said, thus says the Lord, but something more like this. I think the Lord is putting into my mind this, or it seems to me that the Lord may be showing us as a church this. What is said with a word of prophecy should be weighed and what might validate a word of prophecy? Well, first of all, if it aligns with God's word, if it validates and gives a word of upbuilding or encouragement or consolation that's clear and in line with God's word, and certainly if it contradicts or adds to God's word, we should, we should weigh it and, say, and, and not hold on to that as, as being good. But also look at verse three. I think a word of prophecy, as Paul says, is gonna be a word for upbuilding, encouraging, and consolation, which means a word of prophecy I don't think will be a tearing down word or a shaming, condemning word. 
spoken to the congregation, but a word that promotes growing in Christ. That's the upbuilding that spurs other, others on to love and good deeds. That's encouragement or an, uh, exhortation or that comforts God's people in a profound way, uh, reminding God's people of his presence with them. I think that often a word of prophecy uh, is a spontaneous calling to mind of Scripture itself. In, in a moment, as fits the occasion, in a timely manner, uh, to speak to particular people uh, and comfort and assure and encourage. But I don't think it's always restricted merely to a word from Scripture but sometimes it's even beyond this. One example I just want to give you as I was reading this week or listening, uh, John Piper gave a short little Q&A question on the gifts of prophecy. And he gave this as an example of something that in hindsight, he looks back and says, I think that that's an example of a gift of prophecy. He said that, you know, when he preaches, he almost always prays in advance something like this. Lord, would you bring into my mind truths about yourself and about this text and about this group of people in such a way that I might speak with words that pierce with unusual, even prophetic power into their lives. And so he said one Sunday he was preaching, and I can't remember the text, but it was on evangelism, and he was encouraging the people of Bethlehem to be looking for ways to be evangelistic and seeking to study the Bible with coworkers and neighbors. And in one service, it wasn't planned, but he spontaneously, he said, you might be working on the 34th floor of the IDS Tower, which is this high-rise downtown Minneapolis near the church. And he says, maybe you should call your people together to have a small group Bible study. Well, after church, this woman comes up to him and she says, why did you say that? I work on the 34th floor of the IDS Tower and I have been praying about how to reach coworkers for Christ. <laughs> And he said, he said he wasn't consciously aware in the moment of preaching that God had given him a specific word for a particular woman in the congregation. But in hindsight, it seems that the Spirit was encouraging that woman through his spontaneous word in the midst of preaching, uh, strengthening her faith by confirming the prayers that she had been praying. You know, as I, I heard him share that, at Grace, I've had occasions in preaching. I mean, there's preparation for preaching. I mean, I have notes and things that I've planned to share, but I'm also praying that the Lord would speak in ways in each service on a Sunday when we have three services, depending on who's there. And I think I've had moments where I've, I've, I've said something in a particular way or wanted to illustrate something or encourage in a unique way in a service that just came to my mind. And I've had conversations where someone has, has either thanked me or said, I really needed to hear that. And, and I look back and I say, thank you, Lord, for, for, for speaking in, in specific, powerful ways. I think others who preach at Grace have had similar experiences. And I don't think it just happens uh, from those who have preaching or teaching responsibility or ministry in a church either. I think over the years in our reflection services, we've frequently had moments where a brother or sister in Christ has stood up and encouraged us in light of the things we've been learning from his word or uh, comforted us or consoled us or tried to, to build us up with a thought as they sat down. We, there was a sense in the room, we really needed to hear that. That was important. I'm not saying every public testimony at a reflection service is a word of prophecy, but I imagine that some are. There's so much more I could, that could be said on these topics. I want to confess, when it comes to tongues, I've never spoken in tongues. I've never had a personal firsthand experience of that. 
And actually, the only few experiences in my life where I've been around tongues have ne never been in context that look like what we're reading here in 1 Corinthians 14, where it seems like all I've ever seen in my experience has been misuses and abuses. But that being said, that does not mean that these gifts cannot be exercised, as we see here, uh, in an orderly, uh, edifying way. There's a lot about these gifts I don't understand, but here's the point. Because of how strongly Paul encourages us to earnestly desire them and seek them, we can't be disobedient here and just dismiss them. I don't think the option that says, I don't, I don't get these, can't we just move along without them, is an option. Paul says, no, earnestly desire gifts like these. So why? Why prophecy here in the gathering? Why is it so much more helpful than tongues? Three reasons. First one, verses two through five, because prophecy is able to build up the whole church. And that's what love does. It builds up. It builds up the whole church because it's done in love. It's edification motivated by love. Look, at there's two contrasts. Verse two and three says, tongues on one hand are addressed not to men, but to God. So tongues have a private audience of one if there's no interpretation. Whereas prophecy by its very nature is addressed to everybody who's gathered, the church. Verse four, again, tongues can only then build up the one who's speaking, whereas prophecy has the ability to build up everybody in the church. Notice that Paul focuses actually on the one who's using the gift, not just the gift. So he says, the one who speaks or the one who prophesies. I think that makes the sense of this not a positive one. When he says the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, I don't think he means that in this case in a positive way. Even though there's nothing wrong with doing things to seek to build ourselves up spiritually, right? We should. We should read the word and we should pray in private and we should cultivate a private, personal, devotional life where we are being built up. But here when he says it, I don't think he means it positively. I think what he's saying is this. In the absence of interpretation, the one who still chooses to speak in tongues publicly is basically having a loud private conversation with God in public that no one can understand and is really only seeking to build himself up, maybe even to puff himself up. It's the same pattern we keep seeing in 1 Corinthians, isn't it? It's just like the stronger brothers who are unwilling to set aside their rights for the sake of their weaker brothers. They're seeking just to please themselves. It's like the, the rich who are showing up to the, the Lord's Supper service and getting started and feasting and neglecting and despising the poor because they were only concerned with their own interests. Same here, he's saying to speak in tongues without an interpretation is unloving because it's unable to build anyone up but the speaker. And so verse five, he says, while tongues have a proper place and function, prophecy is far more beneficial when the church is gathered. I want to give one clarification. So tongues uh, are unable to build up, but prophecy can build up. What do we mean by building up? Because we don't just mean personal betterment. The gospel, the Christianity is not just good people that God is helping to become better versions of themselves. The gathering, the last part of that, state, that summary statement I gave you is for the sake of the gospel. It's edification for the sake of the gospel. Back in chapter three of 1 Corinthians, Paul said to the church, you're God's building. And Paul says, like a master architect, I laid the foundation. And he says, the foundation, verse 11, is Christ. 
And that reminds us of what the gospel, the good news of the gospel tells us. It starts with bad news saying that because of our sin, each of us, our lives aren't just in need of some minor touch-ups for curb appeal, not even just tearing us down to the studs and, and getting it right. We actually need to come to a point where we abandon the false foundation that our lives are resting on and start fresh with lives built on the foundation of Christ which means we need our sin forgiven and we need a power that is outside of anything we can muster to live upright, godly lives in this age while we wait for Jesus to come back. And that only comes because Christ came, in, like in the songs we sang, and became a man, died for our sin, took our place, bore our shame, buried, risen, ascended, is coming again. So when the church gathers... Christ in me, the spirit dwelling in me, joins with the spirit dwelling in all of you. And together in love, we seek to edify one another that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ for the sake of his fame in our congregation and in the world. So I want to ask a question. I know that this morning we can't all get in a car and drive down here to gather, but in the future... Sooner rather than later, Lord willing, when you are driving again to church on a Sunday, which question will you be more focused on? What am I going to get out of this this morning? Or how can I contribute to the upbuilding of the church this morning? Will you come primarily as a consumer or as a shareholder? Now, we are to come to church to receive, absolutely. But the idea here is if we come to participate, we actually will do both. Do you seek to exercise your spiritual gifts or spiritual ministries to be seen or liked or approved of? Or do you come to build up the whole body of Christ? That's the question, because love builds up grace. I was thinking, uh, what Paul says to husbands at one point in the New Testament is true for all believers. He tells husbands, he who loves his wife loves himself. And I think the same is true for all of us as believers. He or she who loves the church loves himself or herself. In building up the church, you are building up yourself as well. So that's the first reason why prophecy is much more fruitful in a congregation gathered than tongues. Second reason. Because prophecy is intelligible. It's understandable. And edification comes through understanding. Look at verse 6. Again, he says, tongues without interpretation offer nothing beneficial. Paul says, if I come to you and I don't have any knowledge or uh, revelation of some sort that then I speak with a word of prophecy or speak through teaching, there's no benefit for anybody. No one's helped. It's like musical instruments, he says. First example, he says, it's like having a musical instrument and playing no discernible melody on it. No one's going to have a clue what you're playing. I was laughing with this passage this last week. I pulled out my old ukulele uh, and I was playing through one of our old Adventure Week songs uh, because Susan, I think, would love for me to record it for the Grace Children's Ministry Facebook. That might happen, Susan. But anyway, I'm playing my ukulele and Elijah, our six and a half year old, uh, runs up to his room, finds his toy ukulele that you, you, it has strings on it. It's not in tune. I've tried before. You can't even get it in tune. doesn't matter. He brings it down. He doesn't know how to do any chords. And he just starts strumming that ukulele and sort of making up songs. Um, and he did it for like a half an hour. He's walking around our backyard. He's swinging on his hammock swing, you know, strumming this thing. It was cute for a few minutes. 
Like, oh, it's just so sweet. But at a point, as I'm continue, like working at my computer, and this is the background noise, at a point I'm like, ah, he's just filling the air with noise. Because there was no discernible melody. At a point, there's no understanding, right? That's the idea here, is, is this is like tongues without interpretation. I love you, buddy. I love you playing ukulele, by the way. <laughs> he's gonna play it today, I bet. He says it's like sounding a trumpet, but not playing any recognizable call to action. And so there's not going to be any helpful response. Tongues without interpretation are like that. Or verses 10 and 11. It's like foreign languages. It's like you choosing to speak a foreign language in a place. And as a result, you make everybody against their will to be foreign outsiders. You cut them off from their ability to participate. And so verse 12 says a really important statement. This is what sounds paradoxical. He says to those who are really eager for powerful spiritual experiences, who want to see a demonstrate, a manifestation of the spirit, he says, okay, great. He doesn't say don't desire that. He says, seek them then striving after the right gifts. In other words, he says to them, do you want to see greater, broader manifestations of the spirit in your, in your congregation, then seek the intelligible gifts, the ones that actually build up the church. I was reminded of Romans 12 too. How are we transformed as Christians? It's by the renewing of our mind. Edification requires understanding. That by testing, we might discern with our minds what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Edification comes through understanding. And so the spirit or the gift of prophecy comes along with the other intelligible gifts like preaching and teaching to offer intelligible, upbuilding, encouraging, comforting words to God's people that we need. Now, I want to make sure I'm clear here. This is not dismissing the blessing of spiritual experience or em emotional experience. God created our emotions, and he actually, in the New Testament, we find the New Testament authors uh, wanting us to experience things like inexpressible joy or peace that surpasses understanding or to know profound comfort in our suffering, or to have confident assurance when we doubt, or to have strong hope when things look dark. The Bible, want, God wants us to have a sense of transcendence where at times our, our mind and our thoughts and our hearts are just swept up in wonder at the awe and majesty of God that takes our breath away. Who doesn't want these? So we got to hear what Paul's saying. He's, he's not saying don't want those. He's saying, but church, if you are hungry to, to be built up in these when we gather, to see experience of, of these in greater measure among you, great. Strive to excel in those intelligible gifts that more powerfully build up the church. So if we want to excel in this grace, in building up the church, we can never make spiritual experience an idol and understanding or intelligibility secondhand. I don't think right now that we, we tend to be a church that is in that danger, though. So at the same time, I also want to warn us and encourage us to be on guard against the tendency to possibly be a purely cerebral church or a purely intellectual Christian where it's just all carried out uh, sort of in, in, in the world of your thoughts and truths and propositions. Understanding is to then lead to a spiritual experience, communion with God and communion with one another with God. We should pray regularly like a song that we sing. 
at grace, lead us beyond mere formal duty. Show us your captivating beauty, which is intelligible, until in awe and reverence we humbly bow. There's spiritual experience. As we rehearse redemption's story, intelligible, show us the wonders of your glory. There's that spiritual transcendence again. Unveil it here and now. That's intelligibility. That's what happens every week that we gather. God speaks and we respond. Well, Paul expands on this in verses 13 and 14. He says then, uh, one who speaks in a tongue should pray then that he may interpret so he doesn't shut the door on tongues ever being exercised or spoken in a church gathering. But he, he says if they cannot be uh, uh, interpreted, then they should remain silent. Look what he says in verse 15. He holds himself up as an example. He says, so what am I to do as one who speaks in tongues, as he says? He says, I'll pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. What's he saying? I think he's saying, in other words, if I cannot interpret, then I will keep my private gift private when the church is gathered and participate only in ways that are intelligible to all and can build everybody up. He reiterates his point that to do otherwise is basically to stubbornly elevate your personal experience over the building up of others. Verse 16 and 17. If you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. It's, notice, this is the same way of arguing that Paul has done repeatedly in this letter where he puts himself up actually as an example of the very thing that he's saying he's willing to let aside. Like when he said, I have the right to be supported as a, a missionary financially so that I don't have to be bivocational. And nevertheless, I'll gladly lay that aside so that there's no obstacle to the gospel. He makes a similar argument here. He's not bragging. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church... I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So even though his experience with tongues is well beyond any of theirs, he wants to show them the path of love, the more excellent way that builds up. Third reason that he says prophecy is greater than tongues. Because salvation also comes through understanding. Look at these last few verses. Verses 21 through 25. Notice that so far, it seems that the primary audience when the church is gathered that Paul has in mind are believers. Most of what he said up until this point has been regarding building up the church who are believers. But here he says that he assumes that there will be a broader audience whenever a church gathers and there will be outsiders or inquirers and unbelievers. Maybe that's you this morning. Uh, watching from home, and we're really glad you're here. We're really glad you're listening and inquiring and thinking about this Jesus that we're talking about. In the first couple of verses, 22 and 23, he, he quotes from Isaiah and says that this, in a similar way, is what's happening when uninterpreted tongues are spoken in church as a negative sign for those who don't believe. And I gotta be honest here with, with everybody. I gotta level with you. I'm not entirely clear what Paul's saying there exactly. How that Isaiah quote, um, and this, this is an uh, unintended un uh, sign, negative sign for unbelievers uh, here, and it's not for lack of trying. I've, I've wrestled with this this week, and I was reminded of an old story. 
years ago at Grace, when we were over in the East Sanctuary, Sherry Harris' dad, Ray Ortland Sr., was here with us on an Easter to preach. What a blessing. And uh, I still remember, I still remember where I was sitting, and he chose Matthew 27 for us on Easter Sunday, and he gets to the point where Jesus dies, and the earth shakes, and the curtain is torn in two, and in Matthew's gospel, he alone records this unusual detail that says, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And he paused, and I'm sitting there thinking, what's he going to say about this? And he says something like, I'm not sure what's going on there. And then he just moved on. (laughs) And my first thought was like, can you do that? Uh, But actually, as a young, fresh out of seminary, 31-year-old guy here at Grace, I remember being relieved to go, oh, with humility and honesty, you can say, I don't understand everything. Second Peter 3, Peter says about Paul, there are some things in Paul that are hard to understand. <laughs> I think this is one of them for me. But here's the, the beautiful thing. Look at verses 23 and 24. These verses are very clear. And I think as a general rule, we need to interpret verses that are harder to understand by the ones in close proximity that are easier to understand. And look at what 23 and 24 say. Their point is clear. If uninterpreted tongues happen when the church gathers, one uh, detrimental thing that will happen is that any outsiders or unbelievers who are there will likely be confirmed in their unbelief. And they'll just chalk Christianity into nonsense, just gibberish that these strange people believe and practice. He says, but where there is prophecy, where there is intelligible, spirit-given words of truth that point to Christ, look at what can happen. The outsider or unbeliever can be convicted by all and called to account and the secrets of his heart disclosed so that falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Salvation also comes through understanding. Understanding the message of the gospel, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, but also understanding and observing what the gospel creates. The church is God's building And the beauty of the building of God's church displays the beauty of the message of the gospel that saves. And so when a church gathers regularly for orderly edification, motivated by love, the love that we've received from Christ, and it's grounded in intelligible instruction, it's for the sake of the gospel, this has the power to bear witness to the truth and beauty of the gospel. It's able to lead someone to say, God truly is among us here. So Grace, as we close, I want to just go back to verse 1 and say to you, pursue love in this way. Imitate Christ, Grace. He pursued love. He pursued us in love. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Like we sang earlier, he became pitied and poor, living among us. Do you see how he loved us? And notice, in doing this, in the incarnation, God, motivated by love, the incomprehensible God who's beyond our full understanding and is invisible, chose to draw near and make himself visible and as intelligible as he could to us so that the God of the universe could invite us with his own human mouth to repent and believe in him and follow him and become living stones in a spiritual house that he's building. 
If you're hearing that clear message this morning and you have not done so before, I, I pray that you wouldn't harden your heart and that you'd hear him. He loves you. If your life is not built on his foundation, that the, today you would abandon your foundation and come to him. If you'd like to talk with someone about that, you don't understand, you'd like to pray with someone, you can email right now, prayer at graceevfree.org and someone from Grace, one of our elders, will get back to you today. I'd love to talk with you. And finally, Grace, let's earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, as Paul says, especially that some among us may prophesy. We're not called to manufacture. He doesn't say earnestly manufacture the spiritual gifts as if we ever could. We're told to desire them, which I think simply means we're to ask God for them. We're to want them and ask God, would you pour out every gift that you intend for our good and our edification into our congregation and help us to express those in a way that maximally builds up. So in light of that, I think we should take a moment to pray. So right now, in your homes, whether you're worshiping um, by yourself via live stream or with your family or with your housemates or roommates, I would like for you to take a few minutes to pray and ask God to help us be a church that pursues love in this way, exercising the full range of gifts as he wills. Um, and, and let's pray that in the coming days, we're gonna need these gifts, Grace. This is a difficult time we're in. We need grace. We need love for one another. So let's pray that he'd give it. Let's pray.